So let me read Psalm 5. So it says, For the director of music, for pipes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. This is God's word. And I've called this sermon, Praying Against Propaganda. Praying Against Propaganda. Just to define what propaganda is, uh, propaganda is the organized uh, giving out of information uh, that assists or, or damages the cause of a government or a movement or a group of people. Uh, it's an organized uh, assault of words. And there is, in our world, an organized movement of speech and words uh, to persuade our world to go against the ways of God and his word. So we see examples of propaganda in advertisements, in movies, in songs, from the media. Uh, we hear from school friends or work colleagues or family, and even sadly these days from other churches and so-called Christians. Propaganda, speaking against God's word and ways in an organized fashion is something we see all around us. But furthermore, we ourselves can be spoken against personally as well. Evil words being used against us for all sorts of reasons. So sometimes that can be uh, horrible things said to us or about us, to our faces or behind our backs. 
And these kinds of evil words against us can hurt and are damaging to us. Well, Psalm 5 is about how we pray when we are hearing words of wickedness, words that cause us to doubt God, to question whether we are really loved by him, and words that cause us much heartache. How do we pray when faced with propaganda? Psalm 5 gives us a prayer we can pray. The beginning of the Psalter, really from Psalms 3 to Psalm 7, show us different examples of how King David suffered. So in Psalm 3, we saw his major moment of suffering when his son Absalom rebelled against him and fled. And then in Psalm 4, the suffering was caused when he was questioned as king whether he really was God's anointed and whether he would really bring his people prosperity. People speaking and going and rebelling against the anointed king. In this psalm, David is personally being spoken against. And you can tell that this is the theme of uh, the psalm because the main words of accusation, if you notice in verses 9 and 10, are all about words, all about things that people say. So that is the, 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 the theme of kind of suffering that's going on in this psalm. Words against God, words against God's anointed king, David. And here, David pictures our Lord Jesus Christ, who knew what it was to be falsely accused and to have evil words spoken against him. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. He was called Beelzebul. And he was called crazy even by his own family. So Jesus knew what it was like to have propaganda against him. How do we pray when we hear our Lord spoken against, his ways maligned, and called all sorts of names ourselves? Well, the temptation can be to listen to the words and believe them, to take them in, and then to begin to turn away from God. Or we can respond as David does here, bring the words before the Lord and pray. And David gives us a model here for praying against propaganda and accusation. So there are three parts to this psalm. Uh, we see, first of all, how David appeals to God. Then we see what David asks. And then we see, finally, why David's assured. So first of all, how, how David appeals. He appeals to God's character. We see this in verses 1 to 7. But first of all, notice in verse 1 how David brings his appeal to God. In verses 1 and 2, we see David refer to God as Lord, so the personal name of God for his people, my King and my God. So we're not aliens to God here. We are citizens of his kingdom with a personal relationship with our king. And notice in verse 1 how David appeals to, to our Lord, his king and his God, with an appeal to listen. But there are two kinds of 
of, of words that David gives to God uh, in verse 1. First of all, it is words. Listen to my words. Words here are, are literally verbal words that you can find in a dictionary. So we, we pray to God with our, our words. But the second word, if it's not too confusing, that's used in verse 1, is lament. And lament means literally to, to sigh or to meditate or to mumble. These are unspoken or barely audible words from the heart of someone that doesn't have any words to say. Have you ever experienced that where you, you, you want to pray to God but you, you just don't even know what to say? There's no words, it's just a a sigh or a cry from the heart or just our tears. And it's lovely to know that God hears that cry clearly. God knows what we're praying even when we haven't got words. I think that's a real comfort because there are times when we just haven't got the words, aren't there? Well, verse 2 continues that same kind of thought in parallel. It begins, hear my cry for help. So the appeal here is for the Lord to hear and to act upon what David is praying. And in the third verse, we see David speaking about prayer in a different way. He speaks about coming to God in the morning. Now, the morning was when in, the, in, in these days where David uh, was living, when the, when the sacrifices were prepared. And he's saying here, he's laying out his requests before the Lord in prayer in the similar way to one would lay out the wood for the sacrifice that is going to be burnt uh, to make sacrifices to the Lord. And so David wants God to hear his prayer and accept it like he accepts the sacrifices of his people. But there's also something to be said here, I think, as we're thinking about praying against propaganda and against words, to, something to be said for prayer in the morning. Now, I'm not, um, I know not everyone here is a morning person, and I'm not saying you have to get up super early to pray, but what I am saying is that before you hear from the world on your devices or on the TV or on the radio, it is good to seek a word from the Lord our King. And that helps you then and equips you to face the other words that will come your way. So even if, um, for some of you who perhaps... Uh, work night shifts and wake up in the afternoon. Uh, the meaning here isn't you have to be up in the morning. It's how about having God as the first word in your day? But notice how in verse 3, David waits to hear from God with expectation. As he prays, it says that he expects God to answer him. And so for us, a model would be for us to be praying with Bible in hand, ready to hear what God has to speak to us, looking for him to speak, looking for him to give us the words we need to face the day ahead. So David appeals to God, but in verses 4 to 6, we see that the basis of David's prayer is God's character. Why does David expect God to deal with the propaganda that's been spoken against him? He expects God to answer because of God's character. So verse 4, notice that it begins with the word 
for, so here's the reason why God should listen. And God will listen to the prayers against words, against him and his anointed, because his character is one that has a holy wrath against all sin and all those who are speaking words against him, his anointed, and his people. And this holy anger of God is shown in six steps, beginning in verse 4 and then culminating in verse 6. So here's the six steps. First of all, God is not pleased with wickedness. God is not pleased with wickedness. Do you see that in the first line of verse 4? God is repulsed by sin. He's not entertained by it. He doesn't find these words funny. He is repulsed by sin and wickedness. Uh, Sadly, uh, much of what we watch and are entertained by can be sin, can't it? We need to be, be careful about that. God is not pleased with wickedness. Secondly, evil cannot exist in his presence. Notice how David says, with you, evil people are not welcome. Well, we'll see how David reacts to to sinners shortly, but this verse is probably better translated, evil is not welcome. Not welcome means that evil cannot be in the same vicinity as God. It means um, it's not allowed around him or in him. In fact, the the word is, is stronger than just not allowing it. The meaning is that evil is expelled or eliminated from him. It's, it's a, a reaction not unlike to, to being sick. When something in our body is not welcome, we expel it by being sick. And that's how God feels about sin. The only way that example falls down is that sin isn't in God in the first place. But his reaction to sin is, is akin to, to being sick. It repulses him. So that's the second step. Evil cannot exist in God's presence. Thirdly, the arrogant or boastful will not stand. You see that in verse 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Now people are arrogant or boastful about their sin in all sorts of ways. Some are, are proud of it and flaunt it. Others are arrogant by thinking it doesn't matter very much. That's a very arrogant stance. Uh, Some, and this is very common, are arrogant in the sense that they think, well, I'm not that bad, or at least I'm not as bad as name the person. But all of these people will, will not stand. None of us will stand before God in our sin. We cannot, in arrogance, stand before God. Sin will be judged either by Christ on the cross for those who humble themselves or by the sinner themselves if they do not. But those who do not submit to God and do not repent of their sin and trust in Christ will not stand in his presence. The fourth step in verse 5 is some troubling words. It says, you hate all who do wrong. You hate all who do wrong. These are strong words, aren't they? And we might read that and think, well, no, surely God hates the sin and and loves the sinner, right? Well, what's being referred to here is the unrepentant sinner who will not accept the mercy of God. 
This is an evildoer whose life is not cleansed by God. In fact, if we understand how God hates all who do wrong, then the gospel becomes all the more powerful for us. Because it is while we were sinners that God sent his son to die for them, pouring out his wrath against them. He didn't send his son because we're lovely. He sent his son because we are loathsome, because we are sinners. And if you grasp how sinful we really are, then the love of God becomes all the more amazing. But here we read of God's reaction to those who do wrong and they don't repent of it. The call then must be for us to turn to God in repentance and faith in Christ. The fifth step is found at the beginning of verse 6. And the step is God judges wrongdoers. It says he destroys all who tell lies. It's that you hate all who do wrong, you destroy those who tell lies are parallel lines. The ones that are wrong are the ones telling lies. And so although judgment comes on all sinners because of their sin, lies is brought up here because lying is kind of the theme of the psalm. But the words that come out of our mouth reflect what is in our hearts. Jesus spoke in this way. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our hearts are reflected by our words. And that's a huge challenge because how often do we speak a word and then we'll say, oh, I didn't really mean it. I didn't mean it. But the big problem is, yes, you did. You did mean it. Because what came out was what is really in your heart. What you need to apologize for is the heart behind the words, as well as the words themselves. Because when we speak those evil words, we are overflowing what is in our hearts. That's a challenge, isn't it? And then the final step in God's holy anger is at the end of verse 6. It says, the the bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. And what's being spoken of here is alienation. To detest or abhor is to keep a distance from. It's to, to keep at arm's length. Bloodthirsty and deceitful are murderers and liars. And words and actions here are linked And Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he, about murderous words of anger. And so the final result of unrepentant sin is alienation from God, which elsewhere in the Bible we read of as hell. And so you can see those steps, I hope, of of God's character, of his utter contempt towards evil and those who practice it. But the problem for us, I hope you can see, is that when you read those steps, we see ourselves, don't we? All of us have used words that have reflected the evil state of our hearts. All of us are arrogant wrongdoers who tell lies. All of us deserve to be destroyed and alienated from God. Every single one of us in this room has sinned. Our mouths have reflected our hearts. So how, how on earth can we appeal to God? 
how can I come before a holy God when I am exactly the kind of person described in this psalm? Look at the glorious truth of verse 7. This is how we can come to God. David says, but I, by your great love, can come into your house. The word there for great love is a word that appears a number of times in the Old Testament, but most of all in the book of Psalms. It is the Hebrew word hesed, and it's translated various ways in English, but no one English word captures its full meaning. And so it's translated as various words, and they're all amazing words. Words like mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, faithfulness, and the like. It is a wonderful word, and this is the first time it appears in the Psalter, but it will appear many times. It is a common thread, the hesed of God, and here, his great love. In the New Testament, the, 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 the meaning is found in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So we are able to enter God's house, not be alienated, not be outsiders, but to dwell with the living God in his holy presence, not because of how lovely we are, but because of his great love. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for all of our sin, for all of the wrongdoing. God treated Jesus like the arrogant that cannot stand, like the one who tells lies, like the bloodthirsty whom he detests. He treated Jesus like that so that we can be forgiven of all of our sin and go free and come into his house. Great love, great love. And it's on that basis that we then can make our appeal to God. And this applies not just to praying against propaganda, it applies to praying about anything. It applies to come into God's presence in any way. We come to God not on our own merit, not because we are lovely, wonderful people, but because we've recognized our sin and God has great love. Great love. So we can come into his house. Isn't that wonderful? That's good news, isn't it? And when we receive this great love, our response is to worship like David does in verse 7, he says, in reverence, I bow down towards your holy temple. Bowing down is, is worship, including praying like we see here. And the, the temple was the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. But for us, we come to God through Jesus, who is the fullness of God by the Spirit of God. And when we do this, God will hear our words. He will hear our laments. When we've got no words, he hears them all because we've been saved by his great love and we are able to come into his house. And so that means, and David says all of this so that we can know that when we are hearing words against God, against his anointed and against us as his people, we can bring those words to God in prayer because we've been forgiven of all the wicked words that we've spoken because of his great love. 
That's the basis of our appeal. The character of God against evil, but also the character of God that has mercy towards us so that we can pray. And this psalm shows us then that we must do this. We must, in reverence, come to God in prayer seeking his help. And just as an application more generally than just against words, brothers and sisters, we need to make use of this gift of prayer, of being able to come before God with anything, knowing he will hear us. Even when we've got no words, he will hear us. So that's how David appeals. And that's how we appeal, by his great love for us. But secondly then, we we see uh, what David asks. And he asks for God's justice. Now there are three requests in verses uh, 8 to 11. We see them in verses 8, 10, and 11. We see, lead me. Then we see, declare them guilty. And then we see, let all or let them. So there are the three requests, what, how, God, how David asks. So number one, in verse 8, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way stray, straight before me. Now, to be led in a, a certain, uh, to, to be led here is to be taken in a certain direction or way. Now, uh, last year, my sister-in-law uh, and my father-in-law climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. But they did not do it on their own. They booked a guide to take them up the mountain, not, not carry them, although I think for some of the way they probably were. But the guide was to take them on the right path up the mountain so they didn't get lost and, and so on. They were led up to the summit of Kilimanjaro. That's the kind of thing that's been spoken of, of here. Lead me. God leads his people and we pray that God would make his way clear to us. His, his way is the way of righteousness, the way of what is right and true, as opposed to what is evil and false, a, a contrast we'll see, see shortly. But why does David pray, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness? He prays because of my enemies. There are those in his life who seek to lead him in other ways. And because there are other words speaking to him that are not God's word and way of righteousness, he prays that he be led in the right way. And as God's Messiah, his anointed king, David has enemies that want to lead others away from his rule. And so David asks God to lead him and make your ways straight before me. This means to have God's will clear, to be guided in the the right direction, the straight or narrow way. This is uh, what Jesus means in the Lord's Prayer when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we find this straight and right way in God's word. And so again, we, we must be reading God's word in the Bible. And when we read God's word, why not this week, as you open up the Bible, um, just pray verse eight. Pray that God would lead you and guide you in his ways of righteousness. And we need God's word because the propaganda of our world is all around us. And it's described for what it is there in verse 9. It's the opposite of God's way. Notice that David's enemies in verses 9 and 10 
are described in the plural. So uh, their, their mouth, their heart, their throat, their tongues. But the mouth and the heart and the throat is in the singular. So it's lots of people, but there's really only one thing they're saying. They're speaking against God. But notice how the words are described. First of all, they're untrustworthy. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their words are not words you can trust even if they sound good. This means we must, as Christians, in our day, be people that question the cultural narratives that are propagated around us. We must be people that question. So when the world talks about sexuality in the movies and in school and so on, does it marry up with what God's word of righteousness says? When we hear political viewpoints, do we just take them at face value or do we realize that they're not always trustworthy? When Disney says, you can be whoever you want to be, don't trust what Disney says. Trust what God says. And when someone does not profess to believe the gospel, we cannot trust what they say about the gospel. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. That's not to say everything is always untrue, but if you know, someone regularly lies, some of what they are going to lie about, or some of what rather they're going to say is true. Most liars speak the truth sometimes, but if there's a reputation for lying, you're not going to trust any of what they say. And that should be what we, we think about the, the, the narratives in our world. Don't trust what they say. Question what they say. Sometimes it may well be good and true, but often it's not. Trust God's word. So they're not trustworthy. Secondly, there is this inward destructiveness in the mouths of those opposed to God. Notice how David speaks in verse 9 of their heart is filled with malice. Malice can be translated as destruction. So when people speak against Jesus, their words are destructive. Why? Because they're leading people away from Jesus, which is the path to destruction. And then this leads on to their words being words of death. Uh, there's an image here that, that uh, David uses of an open grave. Uh, in other words, in, in this day, if a grave was left open, it would smell. It would smell quickly. And so the words that they speak stink. They are decayed. They are unpleasant. They are unclean. That's the, 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 the words of David's enemies. And it says then, with their tongues, they tell lies. Again, we see this all over our culture. Lies about what the Bible teaches. Lies about God. Lies about what is good. Lies about what is evil. We live in a world that is full of lies against God, against his word, against his people. And Paul uses these words from um, Psalm 5 in Romans chapter 3 to describe all humanity outside of Christ. An inward wickedness that brings an outward stench in evil words. And David wants to be led in God's way. 
not the way of those who show by their words that they are not God's. So the first prayer is, lead me. The second is a plea for justice. Notice in verse 10, the request, declare them guilty, O God. This is speaking to God as the judge who has the right to pass sentence. And he is wanting the enemies who are spouting this propaganda to have their day in court. And the sentence is already certain, guilty. In fact, this is where Paul the Apostle ends up when he uses this psalm as evidence in Romans 3 for our guilt before God and how we can't justify ourselves by trying to keep the law. That Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In other words, when we come to the judgment, when we've not submitted to Jesus Christ, there will be nothing you can say. There are no words. All mouths will be silent before God because you're guilty. In fact, David says, or rather prays, that it would be their own words that cause their downfall. And this prayer is answered on the judgment day. In Matthew 12, Jesus was accused of being on the devil's team. And this is what he says to his accusers. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Every word that you ever speak is recorded by God and used to show our guilt before him. Now that is a terrifying thought, is it not? How we need the forgiveness and cleansing that comes through Jesus. How we need to accept that great love that he is holding out to you to be received. Because when you think about your words, haven't they reflected our hearts so much? Don't we need that great love and that forgiveness? Because if you don't accept Jesus and you stand before God, all those words are brought up and we are all banged to rights, aren't we? And after speaking of the guilt, in the second half of verse 10, we see the punishment. He says, banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. To banish means to force out. And it was used in the Old Testament to refer about being expelled from the land of promise. And here the meaning is the same. It's to be sent away from the presence of God. And the reason for the banishment is, for they have rebelled against you. The accusations against David were against God himself. The words of David's enemies showed they were not God's people, but they were rebels. And the word for rebel means a stubborn refusal. It literally means to, to, to be rigid, to be, that's, what, that's what stubborn means, isn't it? It's to, to hold yourself rigid and not move. These people don't want forgiveness. They don't want new life. They're stubborn against God. And they will be banished from his presence forever. That is the lot of all who rebel against God. And so again, let me plead with you tonight. If you have not come to God and asked for forgiveness of your many sins, as we read here, let me plead with you again, come to God, accept his offer of great love found in Christ and be forgiven of all your sins so that they are not brought up 
but they are forgiven and cleansed completely. But in verse 11, there is another, another but, a contrast to what was gone before. Our words condemn us, our sin makes us loathsome to God, but there is a place of refuge. The final prayer request is in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing ever for joy. There is a contrast here between the untrustworthy, malicious, death-stenched words of the rebels and the words of the people of God in verse 11. Notice how in verse 11, God's people rejoice and sing for joy. Or at least that's what David prays they will do. The contrast is brought out in James chapter 3 that we read earlier, where our tongues are used either for praise to our great God whose love has delivered us from sin, or they're used for cursing. And the prayer that David has here is, Lord, let their tongues be used for praising you, because you are worthy of praise. There is a, a place of refuge. Our prayers, our prayer should be for our tongues to be used in praise of our great God who has loved us so much. We who have taken refuge in Christ have much to sing about, don't we? Much to sing about. But also in verse 11, look at the next part. Spread your protection over them that those who, you lo who love your name may rejoice in you. The protection here is from words of propaganda and accusation that are held against us. And God is being asked here to spread his protection over us. It's like, um, imagine the words against God and words against you as falling debris from a building that's collapsing and God's protection as him jumping over to cover you from falling debris. And the words around us in our world, God, are like that falling debris. They hit hard. But the gospel is like a protection over us that leaps over and stops us being hurt by these falling words because the gospel is the true word, the good word against the false words against us. And we need this protection because words can faith, our But remembering the gospel that we are forgiven, that Jesus has died for our sins, that Jesus is risen from the dead, that the word of God is good, that God loves us with a faithful and eternal love, those truths give us what we need when damaging words are all around us. And we have the gospel so that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Now one application of this may well be that we need to sing more. Sing gospel truth Memorize the songs that we sing so that they may protect us from the evil words in our world. Sing God's praise, not just on a Sunday in church, but wherever you are, even if it's embarrassing. Sing God's praise. Rejoice in his great love. And it will help you to be protected from the other words that are around us. But there is one more point. One more Word, one more verse, which is verse 12, where we see why David's assured. And the answer is God's favor. Verse 12 is a, a, a truly uh, comforting 
word for us as God's people. Uh, it begins with the word surely, meaning this is certain. Okay, so when you read verse 12, know this is really true. It says, surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. God will bless the righteous. The righteous are his people, those made right with him through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And to bless means to have life as it's meant to be lived, life under God's rule. We've seen that in the Psalms before. So surely, Lord, those who are your people, you will give them the life that they are meant to live, life under your rule. But how does the Lord bless us? He surrounds them with favor as with a shield. God's favor means he really does love you. He really does approve of you. No matter what others say, no matter what the devil may whisper in your ear, no matter what the world around you may propagate, God's favor is upon you like a shield. Now, some of you here this evening have heard some harsh words that you carry around with you. Some of you have had those words spoken against you even from spouses or parents telling you that you're not good enough, telling you that you couldn't possibly be a Christian, reminding you of what you've done in the past. God's favor surrounds you like a shield. Here, let me illustrate what this means. A few months ago, uh, in the National Gallery in London, there were some um, protesters that you may remember threw tomato soup at Van Gogh's sunflowers in the National Gallery. And they did this, and some people were worried that the painting was ruined because tomato soup's been thrown at this priceless work of art. Well, very quickly, the National Gallery released a statement that said, don't worry, the painting is not ruined because there is a protective shield of glass that covers all these priceless works of art to protect them against this very thing. And within hours, they'd cleaned up the tomato soup, put the sunflowers back up on the wall, and people could go and enjoy this painting again. Now, brothers and sisters, we are, as his people, in the frame of God's love, and his favor, his love for us, is like that shield. To God, we are like a priceless work of art. And when the world, or anybody, or anything, hurls their filth at you, God's favor protects you like a shield. It's like a shield because it doesn't really make any difference to how God looks at you at all. It's just wiped off, and God continues loving you all the way. That's his favor. It is a shield that protects against the propaganda and filth that is thrown at you from this world. Isn't that a lovely verse? That's really reassuring, isn't it? His favor for you is not impacted in one single way by anything 
that this world throws at you. It is like a shield. It's the, the, we're not going to sing it next, but at the very end we'll sing um, uh, a song which has this line. Satan accuses me in vain, for I am God's own child. His favor surrounds us like a shield. Now our Lord Jesus Christ knew what it was to be accused. But he entrusted himself to his father and waited expectantly. And on Easter morning, Jesus rose again. He had the last word. And we can wait expectantly until the day when lament will be no more. And the prayer of verse 11 will be fully answered. We will forever sing for joy. But until that day, let us make sure that we are hearing God's word a better word than the rubbish words from this world. Let us read God's word. Let us sing God's word. And let us recognize it as the best word that there is. In the words of that song I just quoted, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. What we're going to do before we come to the Lord's table, where we're going to, again, remind each other of gospel truth is we're going to sing uh, some of the fifth psalm together. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote this arrangement to Psalm 5 and we're going to use uh, these words to the tune of Amazing Grace uh, so we can sing this psalm together before we come uh, to the Lord's table. So let's stand uh, as we sing.